Good morning. It is really nice to see all of you guys, like truly, to see you guys here worshiping together. And I don't know what it's like for you when you uh, deal with the cold and kind of the darkness when you wake up possibly to come here and be a part of uh, communing with one another through the word of God. But my hope today is that you would come prepared to have some of the word of God to be applied to your life. Because what we, what Mike just read, where he pronounced names of cities completely differently than I'm about to, Assos is what I thought it was. Anyway, I, there is this opportunity that we have to put into practice the truth of God's word. And I think it's going to be a little convicting for some of us. I think it's going to off-put some of us. But the truth of the word is the truth of the word, and we don't get to change that. So let's start in verse 13. Let's go. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. Okay. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after, we crossed to Samos, and on the following day, (laughs) arrived at Miletus. Luke writes from personal experience, if you pay attention to how this is being read, where Paul planned to go and where he and other companions went via a ship. Paul went by foot to Assos, a port city 20 miles southeast of Troas. I have no maps, but Laura was awesome to do that. Across the country, while Luke and the others sailed around the peninsula is, is where they ended up. Eventually, Paul and his companions ended up at Miletus. We got that one the same, 30 miles south of Ephesus. Verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Because Paul preferred not to go through Ephesus, as he had a great number of friends there, he had experienced a lot of things there, he had connected with a lot of people in Ephesus, and he believed that it would prolong his arrival to Jerusalem. He wanted to reach Jerusalem by Pentecost, which was 50 days after Passover, which was about 43 days after the festival of unleavened bread, which we read about last week in verse 6 of chapter 20. Verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Paul had a message for the elders of Ephesus and requested their presence to talk with him in Miletus, 30 miles south of Ephesus, no lifts, no ride shares, no buses. Paul is about to share, and this is why I'm kind of rushing towards this, he's about to share the only recorded speech we have in Acts where Paul directly addresses believers and elders in this case. I felt that this was very important for our community to unpack this, to hear this, to study this. And this address that Paul makes to these leaders, elders, pastors, shepherds of this church in Ephesus, that Paul helped start and spent so many years with. And while I'm not Paul, and I am definitely not an apostle, capital A especially, I do have a heart for this church in Santa Clara, which I have spent the past five and a half years worshiping with. This message is going to point out motivations of some of what we do here at COV. And so I don't know if you knew this. I don't even know if I knew this as I was writing the sermon, but this is a vision sermon because this text speaks to why we do what we do. But please know that 
even though I'm one of the pastors here at the church, I am also included in the flock of God, and I am in no need, I am in no need less of grace than any of you, because it is only by grace any of us stand before God forgiven. Verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, Paul, speaking to the elders in Ephesus, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Paul begins with reminding the elders in Ephesus about the example and the way of life that Paul lived among them. Now, Paul then says he served the Lord with great humility. I tend to think if someone has to talk about their humility, they've already proven they don't have any. But remember who's writing this. This isn't just Paul writing this. Paul might be saying this, but the Holy Spirit is involved in this process, not only leading Paul as he has served the Lord in humility, but also as this is being communicated to the elders in Ephesus and canonized and put into scripture that we now read 2,000 years later. Now, let's be clear, as I spoke about how there is much application in this text, this is not application for us, where you and I have to brag about ourselves and then blame the Holy Spirit. What we write, what you and I write in text message, letter, what we speak, it doesn't end up in Scripture. It's not that we can't be led by the Holy Spirit as we speak, but we should not speak about ourselves in a way that takes credit away from God. Now, humility, let's talk about this for a second, because I definitely need this preached at me. Humility is the posture of being broken. It's a modesty. It stands in contrast to arrogance and pride. I worked at a church, and one of the -the behind-the-scenes things that once was said was, we pride ourselves on our humility. Uh Uh-uh. Humility is an identifying characteristic of a Christian. But even as I say that, I think there's a struggle that maybe we hear. It's an identifying characteristic of being a Christian. And then we feel like we have to act more humble. Paul says this to the church in Philippi. It's pretty well known. We've read it many times. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and it's a pretty good blueprint for humility that is exercised because it's rather than just what you do and more who you do what you do for. That was a lot of do's. Now, when we do anything, we ought to think of others before ourselves, which I don't think most of us do naturally. That is why Paul says this, as he is led by the Holy Spirit to the church in Philippi, but there's another quote that comes to mind which usually gets attributed to C.S. Lewis, but was actually Rick Warren making C.S. Lewis's quote a bit more tweetable. Here it is from Warren. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Hmm, that's pretty good. I agree with this because false humility tends to be self-deprecation. True humility usually is someone who isn't thinking about themselves, but they're thinking about others. And this is specifically what Rick Warren and Paul are both communicating. But because C.S. Lewis tends to make any sermon better, here's the quote that Rick took inspiration from. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, the truly humble man will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself 
at all. And Paul begins with reminding the elders of his service to God by thinking of others. And he also includes that it was with great tears amongst severe testing at the hands of his Jewish opponents. Now, Paul is using this description. He points out the emotional and specifically in Paul's case, the physical abuse that came with serving God by caring for others. Church, serving others is not easy. And I doubt any of you would think that it was, but the emotional trauma that can come from serving God by caring for others is a real thing. And something that more people should be aware of as Paul and the other apostles and pastors and elders and leaders have been dealing with ever since this. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Now, the writer was not giving license for any leader to make any follower do whatever the leader wanted. But the writer was pointing out that the proper leader ought to be leading with an account that will be given to God one day and with the responsibility that ought to come to a leader who leads, cares, and guides those that are in their care. Now, I have many other things to say about this, but I'm going to refrain because leading a congregation can be joyful. There are times, and I'd say this is currently one of them, but there have been awful times in the ministry that require a faith in God that I don't think most of us realize existed, but because we've possibly come through it, we now see it. Paul continues, verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. Paul did not hesitate to preach anything that he believed would be helpful for the elders and others that he influenced. When I became the lead pastor, it was 67 months ago. I did the math because I have a calculator. One thing I told the search committee, which Barbara was a part of, was that I wanted to lead a church through the Word of God. That was kind of my growth uh, plan. We're just going to read the Word of God, and we're going to encourage people to do something with it. Pretty crazy. I should speak at conferences, huh? And this is why we teach books of the Bible, because we don't want to skip what God wrote because of what the Word of God can produce. Let me show you what Paul says to Timothy. We're going to look at this twice today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There is no better way than to preach the word of God, to read it, to meditate on it, to study it, to apply it, to produce a faithful, equipped servant of God. This is why, if some of you know this, some of you don't know this, this is why we record the sermons. Because we know that not everyone can be here every single week. This is why we care that you're here as often as you can be on Sunday because we're actually going through the word of God. And we're doing it together. And when we come and go, and we listen when we feel like, and we don't really engage with the word as a community, things are missing. We aren't on the same page. 
We view the same text in totally different ways because of what we've heard about it, even though great time and effort has been put in to teach the word honestly and faithfully each week, and not just by me, but by all of the teaching team. Laura, thank you for last week. Well done. Now, I've said this before, but I came from a context prior to being at this church. I was part of different churches, but there was a context. I won't name names, but one of the contexts that I was in really valued people's giving ability and how they contributed to the organization financially. This was kind of the main thing that was talked about. And part of this kind of association, I sat with a pastor at a conference, and instead of speaking about the flock, that's you and me, I'm a sheep, Okay, I'm a sheep and Bob, both work, well done. And instead of speaking about the flock or the sheep as his spiritual responsibilities, he called those in the congregation, his congregation, giving units. Now, I realized I didn't want to be a part of that, and I didn't want to try to continue to grow a church when Jesus promised that he would build his church, and building comes from the investment in the word, together. But this is why, personally, I don't know what people give. Like, we encourage you to give. There's a box, you can do it online. I have no idea what anyone gives. I know what I give. That's all I know. But I don't want to look at one person and say, hey, they give more, so they should be treated differently. No. So because I choose not to know that specific analytic, I pay attention to who's here, who's engaging. Who is both attending and serving, which I personally call participating in the work of the gospel through the people of Church of the Valley. So don't hear this as, oh, I haven't been here in a while and you're calling me out. I'm not. We're glad you're here. But I'd hope you'd give to this vision of being around God's word and putting it into practice. And I hope you see that as a cause that's worth giving of your hard-earned money. But I won't know. Because the elders hide that piece from me because I asked them to. So I hope you'd be here. Not because you receive some credit in heaven, but because being in community and studying the word of God corporately has great benefit to yours and my spiritual well-being. Verse 21. I've declared, Paul says, to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, Paul did not stand on a street corner yelling this to make onlookers feel guilty. Paul preached repentance from the scriptures as an invitation to be intimate with God to those who would listen. Repentance, which literally means to change direction, meant to turn from what you were worshiping and turn to God. It truly was an invitation that God provides by grace for people who actually realize that they're Going to be a, they are not going to be able to be sinless or make up for their sins themselves. And this message was for both Jews and Greeks. And this includes all of Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. Now, let's be really honest about Christianity, okay? People tend to treat Christianity or think of Christianity as very exclusive. It's either Jesus or hell. And I guess that's true in the sense that there isn't a middle ground. But Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, is offered to any and everyone. And this invitation is so inclusive 
that many refuse to receive it because people want to earn rather than receive a gift. Now, when I speak of eternity, because people ask me about eternity a lot, I guess that's part of my job, I, just say, I tend to say it this way. Hell is where God is not. Heaven is where he is. You get what you want. Hell is where he's not. Heaven is where he is. You get what you want. And that seems really good of God to not force you into what you don't want or to go where you don't want to be. Just made it a little simpler, didn't I? Verse 22. And now, compelled, great word, by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Paul is being compelled by the Holy Spirit. To be compelled by the Holy Spirit is to be led by the Spirit of God in the will of God through the glory of the Son of God that's found in the Scriptures of God. And this would have to be of God for Paul to be willing to go towards certain trial and hardships. The irony about this statement that Paul is making is being compelled by the Spirit is that when I hear people use the same phrase or that God told them that they should do something or that God is calling them, it usually does not have trials attached. You know what I mean? But instead it's an excuse to avoid conflict and pain. And I'd go with that's not biblical. So Paul knew what awaited him because of the leading of the Holy Spirit, and he says this very quotable statement. Verse 24, Paul says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul, the great Pharisee, who had earned so much respect and clout in the the religious arena, came into contact with the risen Jesus in Acts 9 and no longer saw any of his past accolades as of any worth. Paul saw his life now as one indebted to Christ who made the way for him to be in true relationship with God. And because of this, Paul lived his life no longer for himself, but for Jesus, and to finish the race of proclaiming God's grace. This is personally what I wish for my own life. This is what I wish my life would be about. This is what I would be the proper application of truly understanding the gospel. This is how I think I would react if I wasn't so selfish, self-absorbed, and distracted. Paul's words here to the elders in Ephesus aren't for the extreme or the hyper-Christian. These are the words of someone who, led by the Holy Spirit, embraces God's grace and it changes their priorities. Let me make it simple. Good news changes you. Good news changes you. And depending on how good you think that good news is will determine the change that takes place. So does the gospel, is it really good news to you? Or is it just like white noise that you hear and you go, oh, I'm going to hear the gospel on Sundays and I'm not going to do anything with it? Because it's a big deal. Verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. 
Paul's making a pretty perplexing statement here regarding the fact that he preached the kingdom of God to these people in Ephesus, but believes that they will never see him again as he is headed towards a future death. And that he does not believe that their blood is on his hands as he is not failed to proclaim the full counsel of the scriptures. So we're up here, like I just want to kind of be meta for a second and like kind of speak into, so I'm up here, I'm reading notes and preaching to you things that I have studied. You are sitting in the pews, pew, pew, and, and you are hearing the truth of God. And generally what happens is we lean in more when there's a story told. Laura had some great stories last week. We lean in a little bit more. But the weird thing about it is I would guess that most of the people in this room really want to grow. You really do want to spiritually not just understand more, but you actually want to look more like Jesus. And, and the weird thing about it is, I, as I've been speaking for over 20 years about God's grace, there's this weird thing that happens when you start to read scriptures, especially a lot of scriptures, people disengage. Even though this is the living and active word of God, and this is the ESV version, so it's extra spiritual. But Paul, as he's speaking about this, he's not just saying things that he's come up with. He's quoting scriptures from before him. And so he's really referencing Ezekiel chapter 3 regarding the blood on the hands. Ezekiel, this prophet God is speaking to, and Ezekiel writes, Son of man, as God speaks, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give warning from me, God says. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. Hmm. So you want to know the responsibility one has who teaches and proclaims the gospel, especially to a church? We will be held accountable for preaching the truth. And the full will of God, found in the word of God, written by the spirit of God. So, so personally, and I think, I, I think you know this, I don't always hit all the world's biggest current events. And maybe there's some I should tackle that I don't, but we are going through the word of God, book by book, passage by passage, and in a lot of cases, verses by verse, and sometimes when Mike preaches word by word, and hoping that the word of God from Genesis to Revelation will truly equip the believer to be mature. Verse 28, Paul gives, a, gives exhortation. Keep watch over yourselves, elders of Ephesus, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Paul states Keep watch over yourselves. Before he even gets to the flock, he exhorts the elders to keep watch over themselves. Now, each elder, I'm not going to point you out this time or make you stand even though you're such good-looking men, but each elder individually should be watching out for themselves spiritually, meaning they are doing what they need to do in their relationship with God to be leaders that can be examples to the flock while also being in God's word, watching out for what they're learning, filtering what they're hearing and learning through the entire council of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And they're being spiritual leaders and servants in their home and in their church. 
Now, I know we don't always do this perfectly, but we have a God that's in the process of growing us. And Paul says, being shepherds of the church of the living God, being elders, being leaders that others in the community can turn to for the truth of the word and for care for their souls. In most cases, if following the Holy Spirit's expectation of an elder, we find them in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can read it yourself, and then you can compare the men that are leading our church. In Titus chapter 1, the elders have not just been called by man, according to these two passages, but by the Holy Spirit. But sadly, throughout history, this isn't always the case. Just because someone has the title of elder or the title of pastor doesn't necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit was involved. But when he is, and the elders are led by God to shepherd a beautiful working of the Spirit takes place through the church, through the hard stuff and the good stuff. And God is glorified. And Paul reminds the elders in Ephesus that the cost of Jesus' life is what bonds those who are included in his church. And for the overseer, the elder, the pastor, the responsibility is huge to care for and shepherd the flock. Verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Paul takes this turn in his exhortation with a pretty stark warning that wolves will come in among the church and not spare the flock. And there's kind of this like two extremes. Some people are like, don't talk to me about wolves. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want any of the bad stuff. Get off social media for the record. And then some only want to talk about this and both sides are wrong. This is a scary and realistic truth of what it means to be part of the church of the living God. There is truth, and there are people attempting to perverse and mislead people from that truth. Entire letters in scripture have been written about this very thing. One of Jesus' own brothers, Jude, writes a very short letter that we taught years ago. And then there's a letter by Peter, his second letter, known as 2 Peter, but Paul addresses this a lot in his letters as well. Paul, while writing to the eventual pastor in Ephesus, his disciple, Timothy, he put it this way, 1 Timothy chapter 1, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Now, let's be clear. I don't think that these warnings are only for Ephesus or only for Timothy, but an example of what happens in any church that attempts to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel of grace. And Paul, again, was warning the elders in Ephesus as he knew that wolves who were false teachers would come in among them, even in the church, in Ephesus, with all of these godly leaders. Verse 30, even from your own number of men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. <sighs> Paul warns that these are not outsiders. But these are insiders who will distort the truth from within. 
Now, to be a wolf means you're teaching something other than the gospel. And by gospel, we simplify it. You are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. But to teach salvation by any other means or to emphasize any other work as what makes you right with God is wrong. See, the only work anyone is saved by is Christ's work on the cross and resurrection from the dead. That is the only work that saves anyone. It's not your work, it's his work. So to teach something other than this, to emphasize something other than this, to waste people's times with life hacks or prosperity through sacrifice of wealth or do-gooding is a preach a gospel other than the one Paul is explaining. In fact, he says this in Galatians chapter one, I am astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so Paul is warning the elders in Ephesus. Verse 31, be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul isn't trying to justify himself or his message. He just wants them to remember that he was consistent in his message pointing to the grace of God and warning them to be on guard against the false teaching that exists and and the false teaching that does not focus on Christ. Paul also says, among many other warnings in his second and final letter to Timothy, this one's pretty well known, 2 Timothy chapter 4, for the time will come where people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. I'm sure none of you are thinking about anybody right now. See, myths don't have to be outrageous or fantasy. Often myths are truths perversed so that they sound right but lead people astray from the gospel. And it's not difficult to be led away from the gospel of grace because grace is not natural. It is supernatural. And it often requires the Holy Spirit to point out to us or to believe it or to receive it or to give it. The Holy Spirit has to be involved. Verse 32, now I commit to you, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Listen, I'm not saying that the word of God can grow you because I just want you to believe that. I'm saying that because that's what specifically it says in the text over and over. Paul blesses the elders here by saying that he commits them to God and to the word of his grace, which is really all that a pastor can do for his people, to proclaim the full counsel of scripture, Genesis to Revelation, all the minor prophets, all the major prophets, all the gospels, all the letters to the church, with the hope that his people would believe it and apply it to their lives. That is what we do here. At least that's what we strive for. That's what we pray for. That's what we hope for because we start to see change in people who are trying to serve God by listening to his word. They're surrendering their own priorities and they're doing what God tells them to do in the text. Verse 33, Paul says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my 
companions. Paul addresses the accusation that others from outside the church were saying that he did what he did for financial gain, which he did not. He worked hard to provide for he and others who were joining him in the work of making known that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 35, in everything I did, Paul says, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's example of hard work was not to be selfish, but to care for the needs of others, both physically and spiritually. But he makes this statement that is debated and important enough for us to address because this is actually an interpretive understanding of scripture that I think matters to us. Because Some of us make applications that we shouldn't from what Paul says here. As Jesus says, here's what Paul says, it is better to give than to receive. Is this true? Yes. It is in line with all of scripture that God gave is a consistent theme of the scriptures and we too ought to give grace, care, and love, and mercy. But that's not what I want to address. I want to address the fact that nowhere else was Jesus quoted saying it is better to give than to receive. So was Paul misquoting Jesus like a lot of people do today? No. This was a common theme of the scriptures and Jesus being God and being known as the word was known to say this. And it's consistent with the scriptures. But none of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote down Jesus saying this. But Paul who was led by the Holy Spirit, quoted by Luke, who penned the book of Acts and also penned the book of Luke, while inspired by the Holy Spirit, quoted Jesus saying this. So this is biblical. It is canonized. It is true that Jesus said this because as we read at the end of the book of John, and here's where I want us to talk about some interpretive challenges, John 21, 25, as he ends his letter, says Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So there's much that isn't included. But does that mean we get to add anything we want or think Jesus said as part of scripture? No. 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 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, first part of it. All scripture is God-breathed. Emphasis mine. We don't get to add or take away from the scriptures. In fact, Revelation, John, the same disciple whom Jesus loved, who wrote the book of John in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, whom Jesus loves, warns those who read the scriptures. Here's what he says, Revelation 22. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. Do we get to add or take away? No. So let me say something we say pretty consistently, but I'm going to say it. How we handle and interpret and apply and care about God's word matters. And I believe it all comes down to our willingness to embrace the grace of God by believing him at his word. 
But when we come to his word, we realize that the word doesn't contradict itself. It contradicts us. And we don't like it. But we will be a people, I hope, I pray, I beg God of this, on your behalf and mine, I pray that we would be a people that would surrender to God and his word and his truth, even when it contradicts our preference and it exposes our priority list that doesn't include or even acknowledge him. Surrender is something that most of us don't want to do. Let's be real about this. But it is what receiving God's grace produces. We said it many times in multiple sermons, but the gospel is really God overruling you. So you say love, you say that you love God, surrender daily to what he says in some way. Verse 36 through 38, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was the statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. I got, this isn't a note, but I got to be honest. I read this and I go, did they not hear anything he just said? Paul was moving on from Ephesus, headed towards Jerusalem and his eventual sacrifice of his own life for proclaiming the gospel of grace. Keep reading through Acts. We get there. So church, simple question. It's applicable. I hope it speaks to every single one of us in this room if we're kind of listening or we're really listening. Where do you and I need to surrender? Worship team, you can come on up. Have we surrendered anything when we've said, yes, I'm coming to Christ? Or do we come to Christ and instead of following Jesus, we tell Jesus to follow us? Are we willing to surrender our priorities? Are we willing to surrender our time? Are we willing to surrender our talents? Are we willing to surrender our treasure? I'll say this. Whichever of those three time, treasure, or talents bug you the most that I said it is probably the thing the Lord's asking you to surrender. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I have no idea how what I just preached was heard, but Lord, I know that your word is truth, and I know that I am daily in the practice of not understanding, spending time with you, and starting to understand a little bit more, and I would assume that that's every single one of us that is attempting to follow you. So God, I ask that you would do a work in us. I ask that you would spur in us a, a, a deep needed want even for your truth. And when we come to your word and it contradicts us, may we trust the one who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it and lived and died and rose again. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.